welcome to the music room with Aileen Miracle and Katie Manichi. All right. It's fun to be talking to you again, Katie. I know I've missed you, but I've also enjoyed hearing some of your other adventures. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we have seen each other every day. It's true. Fun. Which I also <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> we just haven't been on a podcast together in a while. It's true. All right. So today um, for episode 22, we are going to talk about learning styles in the music room. So I thought we could first talk about how we first learned about learning styles in the music room. So I'll, I'll go ahead and start. I first, I, I'm pretty sure I first learned about learning styles when I did my Kodai training. What about you? I agree. It's definitely something that I touched on in my undergrad work, but it was done from the general ed lens. So right. to really think about it as a music teacher didn't happen until I was at Capitol as well. Yeah. So I, I mean, maybe I did kind of learn about it in my undergrad. It's going to date me a little bit, but I did my undergrad. Like I finished my undergrad way back in 1999. What about you? I graduated from high school in 99. Okay. <laughs> so I'm not too far behind. Um, okay. You know, my ed tech class still included the die cut machine. So, I mean, I yeah. can date myself as well. Right. But um, we, had, we had a pretty solid ed psych course load. And I feel like some of that was really fleshed out. We talked a lot about Maslow and we talked a lot about the different learning modalities in the undergrad right. time period. But... Yeah. We, we had a really academic level class at Capitol that was really helpful. I don't know if you took the same course that I did, but it was all about the brain, very yes, specifically about the, the parts of the brain. And oh, I really oh. enjoyed that particular professor too. He was very lively. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm certain you had a different professor than I did because I remember hearing about the professor you had and everyone loved him so much. He, um, he so. was a hoot and a holler. He really, he really opened things up for us and talked to us about really what the driving forces are behind students at different age levels. And really to have that broken down was helpful. Yeah, really cool. Mm -hmm. So when I was taking like my pedagogy classes for my Kodai training, we started talking about physical, visual, and oral learning styles. And that was the first time that we really, that I had ever really specifically focused on you know, really specific learning styles in the music classroom. And we learned about them through the lens of what's called a PPP or a concept plan. And the idea of a concept plan or a PPP is that you have a phase called preparation where you are preparing students. So let's say you're talking about TAN TT, you're not actually using the terms TAN TT and they're not looking at the notation for quarter notes and eighth notes. Um, they might be using the terms long and short short and using kind of iconic notation for that. And they're really getting it, getting a lot of experience with that concept before you formally name it. And the idea is really just that experience, just having, you know, um, I think we talked about this the other day, Katie, gradual release. Right. You know, really getting it into your system, into your bones before really naming it. Mm -hmm. And then once students are really comfortable and familiar with that rhythm or that solfa or whatever you're working on, then we have the presentation phase, which is also known as the make conscious phase, where you formally present, this is what this is called. So like in, you know, for Tom TT, 
you could say, you know, long and short short are actually called ta and tt. And I have a fun story that I use to present mm-hmm. it. So there might be a story or it could just be, this is what this is actually called. Sure. Um, and that lasts just one lesson, that presentation. And so the preparation phase in my classroom generally lasts several weeks. I think that's pretty typical. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Depending on how the class is grasping things and any interruptions or issues with retention, whether there's a break or something, usually between, I would say, three and five lessons of preparation. Yeah. And I've had some that have gone even longer. Oh, absolutely. I guess I'm thinking of upper grade levels. In the upper grade levels, I give them a lot more time. Right. And in it will also depend on how often you see your students too and for how long and, you know, good stuff. So there's not really like a you know, this is how long you should do it because it really depends on your kids. Um, so after the presentation lesson, then you can have practice, the practice phase in which they're practicing that concept, but using the actual names. So like with Ta and TT, they're actually using the terms Ta and TT. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also in the PPP or concept plan, there's also a page for new practice. So you bring in songs that are um, new to students And are they able to transfer their knowledge to new material? Correct. Which could include listening lessons. It could include picture books Mm -hmm. or just songs or chants or whatever. Um, And I have heard, I don't know if you've heard of this, Katie, but I have heard of like this new phase added to preparation presentation practice where there's a fourth phase of assessment. Oh. I'm going to be completely honest. I'm not crazy about that because... I think what people actually mean is summative assessment. And I wish they would use the term summative (laughs) assessment because assessment should be happening all the way through. And I just it's like a little bit of a confusing. Well, you and I have been fortunate to be on so many teams and and have been able to take coursework offered by our district that has allowed us to sit down and have really rich conversations with our department, music department members about assessment and what assessment is really for. And I just think it's, it's just something that we just need to be mindful of all the time and should be happening throughout the process. Right. So I do, I agree. I feel like that language is really tricky. I, I think the thing that changed most for me as I was learning about PVA and the PPP concept plan was really just the opportunity for me to switch my lens and just think about planning in this purposeful way. When I'm planning something, am I the one responsible for the knowledge or are the students responsible for that knowledge? And it's okay if that knowledge is on me, if we're in that prep phase, that gradual release concept, the idea that I start out as, as the one giving the knowledge, but as soon as they're able to master it, that I should be releasing some of that responsibility over to them. That doesn't mean they can't be assessed during the preparation phase. Right. I, I do remember specifically hearing when I was going through my Kodai levels. In Kodai level one, I do remember hearing, you should not assess until after you've presented. You should not, pre- you should not assess until the practice phase. But what I think they meant was you should not summatively Correct. assess. You can't decide if they're ready for the presentation unless you're doing formative assessments. Exactly. Yeah. So formative assessment would be the idea of assessing for learning. Are they getting it? 
you're gauging, you know, where students are at in their learning. Um, because actually on the PPP or on the concept plan, the way that I was trained is like on the presentation page, there's a statement that says something like, you know, students will not will learn the terms TA and TT, for example, sure. or underneath notes, once 80% or more of students can hear um, one or two sounds on a beat or something like that. There's some kind of statement, right? Correct. So in order for you to understand they're ready for that or 80% or more of them are ready, you have to assess. You're just formatively assessing, not necessarily summatively assessing. Correct. And so many of the conversations we've had as a department team has been around the fact that we are assessing more than we give ourselves credit for. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that that those things are happening and we, ha- we know our students really well. Um, sometimes maybe we just don't write it down or maybe we don't think of it as summative, but it's still something that we, it's still data we're collecting all the time. Right. Yeah, very true. Mm-hmm. All right. So as I was doing a little bit of research for this podcast, I came to realize that visual, aural, and physical, or visual, aural, and kinesthetic is actually known as the VAC model, V-A-K, <laughs> which I found really interesting. I'd never really had a name for it before. I just yeah. knew how I, I was, you know, trained in my Kodai training. The way that, that I think both you and I were taught because we went through the same Institute mm-hmm. was you could, um, you know, have quite a few different activities, some visual, some aural, some kinesthetic or physical, and you can kind of put them wherever you want. But I should say, as I was doing some research, I found that um, if for those of you who've read Kodai Today, that in the Houlihan Taka model, which those are the authors of Kodai Today, they actually think that there is a spe- there should be a specific order, first physical then aural, then visual, which I found really interesting. Um, It didn't seem to me to be backed by research. I didn't see any research in the text about that particular thing. I would be really interested to see some research about that. Sure. They were speaking from their own personal experiences. And before we started recording tonight, you had kind of given me a little bit of background on the article that you read. And so in my quick reflection in just the last, you know, 15 minutes, I really think that that I'm doing a lot of aural first. And we sort of yeah. talked about that before I hit record tonight. Right. So I think you're in agreement, certainly when it comes to melodic concepts, I really think that aural is happening first in my classroom. Yes. And it seems to be, for my students, the best approach. Yeah, you know, yeah, we so we talked about this like Katie said before we started recording. I think that melodic I do aural first and for rhythmic I do physical first, which would um which would be in line with their model for rhythmic but not melodic. So I don't know, it's just interesting to think about. I had never yeah. really thought of a particular order. And some other research that I read which was almost mind blowing <laughs> to yeah. me. I this research like at 11 PM the other night and I was telling my husband, Oh my goodness, <laughs> this is so interesting. <laughs> um, is that, okay. So when I went through my levels, I remember hearing that the reason that we want to have physical, visual and oral learning styles addressed in every lesson is that let's say you're a more of a kinesthetic or physical learner. You will learn better if, you um, do physical tasks. And if you're a visual learner, which I believe is what I am, then you will learn better with visual tasks. The research doesn't actually support that. 
and I read several different articles that said this, the research does not support that, which was, like I said, mind-blowing to me. That is so interesting. Yes. What the research does support is that students who learn in a variety of ways do learn better. So I think that for those of you who are doing what we're talking about, where you're doing physical, visual, and oral, like keep doing what you're doing. You're doing the right thing. Correct. It's for a slightly different reason. We're not doing it because the physical tasks are going to address the physical learner's needs better. We're doing it because we're doing the variety because it will improve everybody's learning. Exactly. Which is just really interesting to me. It is so interesting. All right. Okay. I want to ruminate on that. (laughs) I want to think about that some more. Yeah. All right. So, um, so I thought we could discuss some specific ideas for visual, oral, and physical with rhythmic and with melodic. And we had talked about, um, focusing on like specific concepts, like we're going to talk about ticka ticka, otherwise known as teary teary or 16th notes Mm -hmm. as, as dough. However, the activities that we're going to talk about could probably be extended to any rhythmic concept or any melodic concept. Because really, you look at any PPP or any concept plan, so many of the activities could be extended to other concepts. Agreed. Before we do that, I have a question and I wonder if our listeners will have the same question while they're listening. Where did you find the VAC model? Was that under a, was that part of music research or was that general education research or psychology? Yeah, that was general education. That's so interesting. So we're not the only ones thinking this way. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, so much of the Kodai philosophy is rooted in educational philosophy. Correct. But I think, um, you know, when I went through my training, I just learned about it as this is Kodai-inspired teaching. But to learn specifically what it's called in the educational world is really interesting. You know? Right. And it just makes it easier for us to connect with our colleagues if we know if yeah. we have common language because we might say PVA and they're thinking VAC. So that's helpful. Well, and I don't know that classroom teachers actually know that acronym, but <laughs> it's out there. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about some visual ideas for rhythmic concepts, specifically, like I said, for Tikka Tikka or teary teary or 16th notes or whatever you call it, takadimi, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, could be applied to other um, rhythms, rhythmic concepts. So um, one visual idea that I think works really well, let's say you're in the iconic or sorry, in the preparatory preparation phase for Tikka Tikka, iconic representation. So I use four dots for Tikka Tikka. Do you as well? I do. Yeah, so like having students read, instead of reading like the actual rhythm that looks like ticka ticka or 16th notes, um, having them read four dots and calling it, there's a variety of things that you could call it. In our district, a lot of us use Olentangy because we are in the Olentangy local school district. Yes. Um, But I have also had students vote on like a U.S. state to call it. Mm -hmm. So class might be calling it a different U.S. state. So one class might call it Mississippi. Another one might be called Oklahoma. Another might call it California, you know, which is a really interesting conversation to have. If you have ever asked second graders for a U.S. state that has four syllables, you get some interesting answers. You do. (laughs) Cincinnati is one of them I get a lot. (laughs) Or, 
India. Not a state. <laughs> which is neither a U.S. state nor does it have four syllables. <laughs> yes, it is a place. So, <laughs> right track. Um, so yeah. So I'll I and I I think Katie, you do the same thing. Have them read like four dots. For, yes. Um, but not calling it ticket ticket. You're calling it Mississippi or Olentangy or Oklahoma or whatever. I most recently had a lot of fun with a third grade class that had just finished a a unit on rocks, uh-huh. and they wanted to call it metamorphic. Oh my because goodness! Because that was one of their their but, vocabulary but, words. No things that you wouldn't expect them to know. Metamorphic. That's great. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like in the practice phase, obviously, instead of reading it with four dots, you could just simply have them read the rhythm to a song up on the board. That would Correct. be like a really easy visual activity. Mm-hmm. Any others that you can think of, Katie? Uh, I do. I do like to to do some drumming with the students. So having them try to say back tapping four beats during that prep phase, you know, just tapping on the drum and having them echo back what they heard the drum say to them and see if they can find where the Olentangy is or where the prep, whatever prep word you're using. See if they can find which beat it's on. Would you consider that more of an aural activity though? Yes, probably. And I'm just tired. (laughs) (laughs) You got me. (laughs) Right? There we go. Um, Oh, and we should say that like a lot of these um, activities we're talking about, there is overlap. So you might have like a visual activity that's also aural or an aural activity that's also physical or an activity that's really all three, the visual, right, physical, right. and aural. Now you whatever. could turn that into partially visual if you put a poison rhythm or something on the board that yeah. they had to listen for. I would say that'd be really close to the presentation phase though. If you're putting it on the board and asking them to really be aware of it and while they're okay. also listening to something, I think that's a little closer to present maybe. Yeah. What do you think? And that would be a a good RL slash visual because they're they're looking at it on the board, but they're also listening for it. So that the kind of the a general overview of visual, aural and physical would be visual. Can they see it or read it? Aural, can they hear it? And then physical would be, can they feel it? Mm-hmm. I guess would be kind of the, you know, simple way of looking at it. So with visual, can they read the rhythm, whether it be a preparatory rhythm or an, some kind of iconic representation? And then if we're, lo- you know, looking for aural activities for rhythmic, um, you could identi- have them identify how many ticket tickets are in a song or how many Mississippis are in a song, depending mm-hmm. on whether you're in the preparation phase or the practice phase. Um, I actually just had students do this. Um, yeah, my fifth graders were practicing syncopa, or if I say that correctly, syncopa, also known as tita, tea, whatever you want to call it. Right. And I them sing Oboshi Nat and Tanten, which is one of my favorites, and they clapped the rhythm and figured out how many cinco pas they heard in the song. Um, so that is purely aural. They're clapping the rhythm. I guess it is somewhat physical too if they're also clapping the rhythm, but they're really trying to focus on how many of that rhythm do they hear in the song. Right. And then another one for um, aural could be like maybe you have the lyrics on the board and students have to place the heartbeats 
where they where they belong. So like let's say for Dance Josie, you have Chicken on the Fence Post Can't Dance Josie. You have all the lyrics written up there and the students have to place the beats wherever they go. Correct. I remember that actually being difficult for me as a grad student when we first started doing that because I'm more of a melodic person and rhythm uh-huh. has always been a struggle for me. And I remember not being the only one in my class that when we were really asked to place the beat certain in, you know, in certain spots that we were struggling with it at first, because it was a new idea. It was a different way of learning it. And that was so helpful to me. And I've really taken that to my classroom. I think that that's so helpful. I think that actually speaks to what we were talking about before. You know, the idea, the initial idea that I had gotten is that students learn better when their particular learning style is addressed. Mm -hmm. Research actually doesn't support that. The research supports that, you know, the, the more ways that something is addressed, the better. So maybe for you, because aural is not your strength, it actually improves your learning. Right. Right. Visual, visual is not a strength for me. So placing, like placing what I hear and putting it into a visual representation by putting the beat there was really, really eye opening for me. Yeah. Because I just didn't think that way. So, um, so I do, I, I didn't, I certainly didn't have that thought on my own, but when you brought up that research earlier, I, I do think that that's probably true, that I've been strengthened by addressing my weaknesses, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. And then are we ready to move on to physical rhythmic? Sure. Okay. So physical rhythmic, just a really easy physical activity for um, you know, practicing rhythm would be clapping the rhythm of the song. So like if students are singing Dinah, clapping the rhythm. And I like to have them use two fingers in their hands. I do simply too. Because, yeah, if they're using their whole hands to clap, it can get kind of noisy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and also a really early preparation activity that I like to do. So let's say if I'm, you know, it's the first lesson in which I'm preparing Tikka Tikka, I like to have them switch back and forth between the beat and the rhythm. So Back in the day before technology, I had like a sign that was almost like a stop sign where on one side it would say beat and then you flipped it over and the other side would say rhythm, but it kind of looked like a stop sign. Yes. So it would say beat on one side and rhythm on the other. And when they saw the beat, they would pat the beat on their lap. When I flipped it to rhythm, then they had to clap the rhythm, two fingers in their hand. Correct. Now I do use smart notebook for this. Most of the time, sometimes I still use a, you know, traditional sign, but, um, if you have Smart Notebook, if you search Flipper in Smart Notebook, then there's this little flipper thing where you can write one thing on one side and something different on the other. And then every time you tap the Smart Board, it flips to the other side. That is cool. Yeah. But it's just a really easy physical activity, especially, like I said, in early preparation, I find it helpful. I still uh, come back to having half of the class, if I have the kids in a circle, for example, Uh if they're sitting in a circle, that every other student is doing the beat and then the other students are tapping the rhythm and then I have them tap each other's knee. So they're on, one hand is on their knee and one hand is on the knee of someone next to them so that they're feeling both the beat and the rhythm at the same time. 
Yeah, I've done something kind of like that, but not exactly. That's that's cool. It's kind of cool because they're only responsible for either the beat or the rhythm. But if it's done correctly, they feel the beat and the rhythm at the same time. Interesting. Do you so do that fun. more in like early prep or late prep or where do you usually put that? I typically do it mo- in the upper elementary. So I wouldn't start it with students younger than maybe third grade. But right. um, I like to do it kind of middle of the road. It's it's a good formative assessment to see if they really can keep the steady beat. So I'm probably two to three lessons into prepping. Yeah. Take a ticka and I'm going to I'm going to put it in my next lesson. Cool. I, yeah. they, and they know t- at least three songs that have ticka ticka in it at this I, point. So they've internalized it enough that I think they'll be able to do it. Yeah. Try it out. Actually, um, with first grade today, they're preparing Ta and Titi, but same kind of idea. I had them first keep the beat in their feet, mm-hmm. then still and put the rhythm in their hands. This was with BB Bumblebee. And yes. then they put their beat in their feet and the rhythm in their hands at the same time, which was really interesting today because I just happened to have a student who, before I even asked them to do that, to put both together, she was doing it. That's wonderful. <laughs> oh, I was super excited. I was like, you know, Stella is one step ahead of us. We're going to do what Stella just did and get <laughs> the rhythm in her hands. Way to go, Stella. Yeah. And, that, and it's cool because... I can, you know, I've had a conversation with students about how as musicians, as people who make music, it's good for us to do more than one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. So we talk about how like a piano player has to do one thing in their left hand and something different in the right hand, or a drummer who's playing a drum set has to do one thing in their left hand, something different in the right hand, sometimes something different in their feet. So, and, and I compare it to like tapping your head and patting or rubbing your belly. And mm-hmm. then we, switch, you know. It's just good for them to understand that doing more than one thing at a time is good for them as musicians. When you are in these physical, in this physical phase of preparation, do you always keep the beat in the lower half of their body and the rhythm in the upper half of their body? That's kind of how I was trained. So I just wondered if you ever switched up. Uh, Not in preparation. Yeah. Right. I, I don't know that I ever like really had a conscious thought about it, except that was the way I was trained. Right. But you always have them put their beat on their lap and the rhythm in their hands. Correct. But then like, yeah, maybe in pra- in the practice phase, I've had them put their, you know, although I don't know, I guess, okay, I'm going to go against what I just said, because in that same lesson where they were putting their beat in their feet and the rhythm in their hands today, this morning, I did have first graders walk different rhythm patterns. So I actually have these cards as a freebie in my TPT store, which I can link to in the show notes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But I have these cards that are like walk, walk, running, walk. And they show kids walk, you know, they show a kid walking, walking, and then running and then walking. So there's a soul to go with it. So they are putting the rhythm in their feet in that case. But in that case, they're not, they're not switching back and forth between beat and rhythm in their feet though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're just doing one. I was just interested. I think that's neat. I remember learning one of the first uh, classical connections I remember making was to uh, the Surprise Symphony. Yeah. And I learned tiptoe, 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 look, tiptoe, tiptoe, right? So I do remember even in that early Kodai training, putting a rhythm in our feet 
but yeah. that would not be confused in the same lesson with putting the beat in your feet. Yeah, that's so, true. So yeah. it's, it's purposeful, but I don't know, just a thought I was having. Yeah. All right. So are we ready to, oh, I have one more physical idea for a rhythm. Go for it. Uh, and there's so many ideas. We just wanted to highlight a couple per, um, per learning style. But one more for physical is having students only tap on a particular rhythm. So like um, dance, Josie, I've done this. Instead of students tapping, you know, the rhythm in their hands or the rhythm on the lap for the entire song, they only tap on the ticket ticket or they only tap on the Mississippi or whatever you're calling it mm-hmm. like that before I have I've also had them use the prop word like Olentangy or watermelon or whatever oh. um to to switch out for the lyrics but then sing the actual lyrics oh. for the rest of the words yeah so like Mississippi fence post can dance Josie exactly yes yeah. Yeah. yes so again, there are just so many ways that you can take one of those ideas, change it from physical to aural or visual to suit whatever needs you have. Right. Or like the um, activity we were just talking about, um, the way that I've done it in my lesson is actually aural and physical because first I'll ask students, what do you notice I'm doing when I'm tapping only on the Mississippi or only on the Ticka Ticka, which would be aural because they have to figure out that I'm only tapping on that one rhythm. Mm-hmm. And then when they do it, it becomes a physical task. Correct. Yeah. I remember in our training also talking about depending on how you do that physical task, if it's only a small group doing that physical task, for those students, it's physical. And for the rest of the group, it's visual or whatever yeah. it ends up being. So different students are having um, a variety of experiences even within one activity, which I think is why earlier I was having a hard time giving examples because so often I'm mixing them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's move on to melodic. So like I said, we're going to look at at dough, but these can totally be adapted to other sofa. Sure. All right. So if we focus first on visual for melodic, um, something that I like to do is um, put the words on the smart board or the whiteboard showing melodic contour. So like, let's say peas porch hot. If we're talking about dough, um, you could have the words nine days old, but instead of having them in a straight line, you have them with that contour. So going from high to low. Mm-hmm. Now, I like that. And then that can so easily turn into identifying skips which is such an important part of that, that preparatory phase. Our Kodai training asked for us to go from so to do. At least my levels did. Yeah, I don't remember that. Right? We were asked to approach. that conversation before where right? some things that you learned were a little bit different than a what little I learned. A little bit different. Okay, and so talk it, to me about that. And it was something that I remember pushing back on because they had... I, I think um, the song that I used as my present when I was retrieving was I Am on the King's Land because it had that so, 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 so do at the mm-hmm. end of it. And that was the direction that that level two training was asking me to go. And that didn't work for my brain. I yeah. agree with you. I like the Peas Porridge Hot where you have that so me do because that's yeah. such an important concept too. 
that they're yeah, almost the learning that passage as well as the new sound. That's actually the song I use for a presentation is Peace Portat, which is super interesting because I do believe we had the same level two teacher. Oh, so we did. One, <laughs> who is fabulous, by the way. Totally as, fabulous. But it's so interesting because it just makes you wonder, like, you know, you as a student are maybe hearing things a certain way because that's just your experience. That's, you know, just right? how you interpret things. And then you talk to someone who had probably the same training and you hear, you heard it two different ways. It's exactly. really, yeah. So it makes me want to go back and look at my notes and see if I just misinterpreted because I what? remember disagreeing even then. Right. So it right. could have been the group I was with, maybe the conversations we had put us in a different direction. Uh-huh. You know, it could have been my classmates and not the, the instructor. Right. So, right. but I remember being asked to go from so to do and that not working for my brain. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, that's not wrong. I still make sure that there's a so to do at least one or two songs where there's that leap so that right. they're hearing the difference. And it's certainly a great way to identify the lowest sound in the song. Yes. Actually, I started preparing dough this week with second graders mm-hmm. and I used Kingsland and I had students close their eyes and raise their hand on the lowest note. Right. Because that, because it's so, 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 so dough, it's a lot easier, I think, to hear than maybe so me dough. Right. But that's the lowest note. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, really interesting. Okay, so let me pick your brain a little bit here since we, I think, had most of the same teachers, but maybe interpreted some of our material a little differently. If or you're listening, you're all wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> truly, truly wonderful teachers. Truly, but, truly. but again, I think it probably a lot of this is interpretation on the student's part. Okay, right. so I remember hearing a little bit of like, depending on which teacher I had or which level I was in, some different interpretations of whether students should work on the staff in the preparation phase. What do you remember hearing? I remember icons in the prep phase. Okay. And not staff work. I remember not staff work. Okay. That it was, that it was icons and maybe they'd be not on a five line staff or maybe it would be just more contour. Right. And I remember a lot of the the lyrics because, again, we were working lower tech. So I would take some of the, the lyrics of the song and cut them up. And the students uh-huh. would use them, you know, magnetically move them around so that they were showing the contour in the words. Right. Yeah. That's what I remember more than staff. And then staff kind of happened right before the present phase or right after. Yeah. Or at present. Yes. That is the same experience I've had. Okay. I'm completely opposed to using a little bit of staff in the preparation phase, especially with older students, but I really don't focus on it until the practice phase. Yeah, I would say once once they've put dough on the staff, I feel a lot more comfortable even in the prep phase having right. them start to identify things because they're really able to start to plunk things down. I think you were using the example earlier of of low so at that point once they're extending the pentatonic mm-hmm. there's so much logic that comes into play and you've laid so much of the groundwork when it comes to steps and skips that right. i feel like they can go right to the staff right yep 
So speaking of visual work with melodic, so, mm-hmm. you know, after they have been presented with a particular concept such as dough, staff work is a great um, way to practice visually, you mm-hmm. know, um, to put it on the staff. And another way of doing it, instead of just looking at a staff on the board or on the smart board or whatever, would be to do hand staff. Um, Absolutely. You yeah. know, where you're, you're having students you know, look at, I always say to look on the inside of their hand so they can see the lines on the inside of their hand. So the thumb is pointing up. Although I have heard, I just listened recently to, um, a great podcast episode by music teacher, coffee talk about Solfesh or Solfa, whatever you want to call it. And we can link to that one in the show notes as well. Um, but they talked about how I think John Firebend actually uses hand staff so the thumb is pointing down, if I remember correctly, which I thought I am was- currently looking at my hand. <laughs> yes. Those of you who are listening, if you're driving, just wait. <laughs> right? I'm having like, um, like I probably look like a, a college student that maybe has partied too long. Like I'm staring <laughs> at my hand right now and flipping it back and forth. Like, yeah, so I like to do... Okay. You can see the lines on the inside of your hand. If I remember correctly this podcast episode with music teacher coffee talk, they talked about how John Firebin, the way that he teaches is the thumb is pointing down, which would mean the pinky is like the fifth line and your thumb would be the first line. I like thumb up personally. My, my wrist does not like thumb down. I'm doing it right now and I don't feel comfortable. No, me either. I don't know. Just interesting. Just something to think about. I wonder what the, the, the reasoning would be. I don't, I don't know. I'm a firm believer that there's really no one right way to do things. And I kind of, I get a little bit irritated and frustrated when people tell me I have to do things in in a a very specific exact way, especially when I know there's more than one pathway to that Mm -hmm. because you really just have to do what works for you and more importantly, what works for your students. So, you know, our students... They're so fabulous. Sometimes I, I sit and just marvel at the fact that they do what I ask them to do. I mean, really, we ask them to do so much. And so many of the things we ask them to do are strange in the context of the rest of their day. Yeah. <laughs> so if they want their thumb down, more power to them. If right. they want their thumb up, rock on. That's what I'm going right. to do. Yeah, yeah. So my my point is there. I don't think there's one right way to do things. You kind of have to figure out what works for you, but we're presenting a few different ways that you could do it. So you can choose on your own what works best for you. And I can attest that you truly live that. You are so fantastic about that. You are like, you, oh. you're so understanding of colleagues. You are understanding of students. It's so great. Thank you. That's I love nice. that about you. Thank you. All right. So we talked about visual for melodic, aural for melodic. Okay, so I already talked about raising your hand on the lowest note. That's like a great, easy, you know, first preparation activity. Yeah. Um, I also like to, I have this activity that I often put into my lessons that I just call melodies. <laughs> also just melodic patterns where like I'll sing a pattern on solfa. So this would be like in the practice phase, unless like, for example, if you're preparing dough, I call that low in the practice phase. So instead of saying yes. like, so me low or so me do, you could sing so me low in the preparation phase and they would be your echo and you just sing a bunch of patterns using, you know, so far that they know. And then you could do this a, 
a few different ways. You could only sing the first solfa and show the hand signs or the body staff or whatever for the remainder of the pattern, and they have to sing back the entire pattern, which means they have to inner sing that pattern and then sing it out loud. Mm-hmm. Or you can play it on the recorder. I love to do that too. So, because a recorder, especially a soprano recorder, is so much like, well, I guess maybe the tenor recorder is even more like the human voice, but whatever. The recorder is a lot like the human voice. So, um, or I didn't mean tenor recorder. Did I mean alto recorder? <laughs> alto. But the soprano, the soprano does support head voice, I think. I definitely yeah. think it helps. Yeah. So, like, I'll play a pattern on the soprano recorder. I tell them that the first pattern starts on so or whatever. They sing it back to me. And I find that to be a really great way to build those inner hearing skills and to really internalize that. And I'll say too, you know, I'm sort of in the middle of my career. I'm midway through. But I think sometimes I feel like a younger teacher in this way. I'm I'm not great about telling stories throughout my lessons. I think that's something that you do really well. Um, I don't, I, I tend to use these melodic patterns, these kinds of things that you're, you're mentioning now as my transition. So, you know, for young teachers or really for anybody, don't forget to, to, to use that. If you're struggling with how to transition from one activity to another, it's a great teaching moment. And it also can help you shift the focus of the lesson. So sometimes if we've been working on rhythm, I'll start by just singing some patterns or playing a couple rounds of poison or whatever that may be, just because I'm not a storyteller in that way. And it really helps me shift gears. And I think hopefully connects things for my students too. Yeah. I actually think I told more stories in um, the first few years of my career, especially after my first year of Kodai training or my first summer of Kodai training um, because I learned about story transitions and I just kind of latched onto that. So mm-hmm. like especially kindergarten, it was like, and then Lucy Luckett went on to engine engine number nine. And then we do engine engine n- number nine. And then it's like, and then she was stung by a bee. And we say, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I still do that when I teach kindergarten and first grade, I still do that a little bit, but I do much more of the, like you said, the musical transitions where, you know, you're singing patterns from one song and then you transition into another, or you're clapping rhythms from one song and then you transition into rhythms from another song or whatever. Mm-hmm. I found that to be a really easy transition. And and I, I don't think I'm saying anything mind blowing, but I do think that it's helpful even, even now when I'm planning, if I am going to do melodic patterns, I do actually write out the ones I I want to make sure I get to. So if there are certain ones that I am isolating from a song that they've been working on, or if there's a specific pattern they've been struggling with and I want to make sure I work it in, I might not write down every single pattern, but the ones that I really want to make sure are addressed and identified, I do actually write in my lesson plan. Yeah, I think that's a good point because sometimes um, I think it's easy to just sing the really familiar patterns or like the stepwise patterns. Mm -hmm. But I have to remind myself like, you know, to put in something that's a a pattern where each note is a skip apart instead of a step apart. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like when they're practicing Ray, it would be really easy to do a bunch of do, re, mi, mi, re, do, do, re, mi, so kind of stuff. But to put in so, mi, do, um, 
even though we're practicing Ray, it's still good for them to go back to Somi Do and be able to hear the difference between Somi Do and Somi Ray, you know, that kind of thing. Or Somi Do and Mi Re Do. Yeah. That's so tricky. Yeah. Or Somi Ray Mi instead of Somi Ray Do. You know, just the ones that are like a little bit less familiar, but are still really yes. good for students to be able to hear and identify. Even when you are backtracking to like more level one land or, or first grade, I have learned the hard way that I have to make myself start patterns on me instead of always starting them on so. Yeah. And to, and to make sure that that's part of their consciousness in the prep phase, because if not, once they get to practice, it is so internalized. Yeah. um, That it's really hard to break that pattern. And I know that because I had some bad teaching along the way <laughs> where, where I really felt for my students. Cause I had, I had locked them into. So being the starting point. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. All right. So we had some visual and oral ideas. So physical for melodic, um, really easy one would be in the prep phase to use body staff or in the practice phase to use hand signs. So I have to ask you, Katie, because I have heard several different ways of doing body staff. Do you have a particular system for body staff? Like where do you use body staff? I should first ask you. You know, I haven't been using it as much, but that's really because of where, what I'm teaching because I travel for the district. I teach kindergarten right now. And because we only see them once every seventh or eighth day, um, it's, it's really been a simplified kindergarten. Normally I would get to maybe so in me by the end of the year and I'm not getting there right now. Um, because it's only 35 minutes. I think there, I think I used to, because I used to have, I used to have kindergarten twice a week for 35 minutes uh each time. So when Uh I was seeing them that much, I got there. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely don't know. So, um, and then third and fourth grade, I, I've kind of moved away from body staff by third and fourth grade. And I don't know if that's good or bad. But in yeah. first and second grade, I typically did. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so I know I've talked to Amy Abbott, my friend Amy Abbott, about this. She, her body staff is different, and I might actually end up using it. I feel like w- when I was listening to that Solfege episode with Tanya and Carrie, that they use the same as Amy, which makes sense because they all went through Colorado State's Kodai program. Okay. Uh, but... I remember, and this is, of course, this could be a wrong interpretation of what I had actually learned, but I remember hearing, um, learning do as your feet, ray as your knees, me as your hips. Fa is kind of between your hips and your shoulders. Your okay. shoulders should be so, la would be your head, and then T is kind of like a little bit above your head. You can even put your fingers like you would do for the hand sign T, and then high do could be like your hands in the air. I think, okay. I'm trying to remember, I think what Amy and Tanya and Carrie use, and I apologize, ladies, if you're listening and I'm mis- um, miscommunicating this, I think that they might have dough as their hips. Oh. I kind of like better because my issue is like um, with fourth graders, I was preparing low so. In order to do low so, low la and low so are actually on the ground in front of you because do is on your feet. Oh. Yeah. So in order for me to like do body stuff with them, I actually have to sit on the floor with them. Not everyone can totally see me because I'm already short and I'm sitting on the ground, you know? Right. 
Whereas if you put dough somewhere else, like dough on your hips, then like Lola could maybe be your knees and then Loso could be your feet. Okay. If I'm remembering correctly. Um, but you know what? How about this? Because I could be wrong. <laughs> In the show notes, which if you go to my blog at mrsmiraclesmusicroom.com and you click on podcast, if you go to um, podcast episode number 22, um, I will ask Amy what her system is and I will write what her body staff is versus my body staff. So that way, if you're interested in doing something like that, you know, you can choose whichever system works best for you. Again, really no right or wrong way. It's just, you know, whatever you prefer. But the idea of body staff, the way that I kind of, you know, interpreted this is I use body staff in the prep phase and then Mm -hmm. I use signs in the practice phase. Okay. That makes sense. Just because like you, although there are some people, and I believe this is actually kind of a fire up and thing who use hand signs from the get go, even when they're preparing, they go ahead and like, let's say you're prepping dough, they would be doing the hand sign for dough, but maybe calling it something else. Now I've done, I more often have them just point down for a low. Mm-hmm. So it, they'll do the hand signs for so law and me. And then mm-hmm. point lower for low. Yeah. And that's that's something I've done during the prep phase. Yeah, that could work. So that they're still using everything they know and then just using almost like almost a prep hand sign as well as a prep word. Right. Yeah. Yeah, again, there's no, you know. Yeah. No, no, say- no, you're asking good questions. It's making me think through it. Yeah. What yeah. do I do? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is like another podcast episode that you and I have talked about doing because we only see our students once every five days for 50 minutes. There are certain things that I think both of you and I have had to kind of take out of our curriculum or change or simplify because we just don't have the time with our students. So we had talked about doing that as a podcast episode, just as a whole topic. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I mean, some of the things that we're t- talking about right now, maybe we've simplified because of that reason, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it's nice every once in a while to kind of like clean off the cobwebs and think about what I am doing and yeah. why I'm doing it though. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And another physical activity, which I think is similar to body stuff or hand signs, is to show the melodic contour with your body. So like, let's say you're, you know, preparing or practicing dough, you could have students like, um, how would I do this? Let's say we're talking about peace portat. They could um, stand tall or almost tall, you know, for so. Right. Maybe crouched and dough could be on the ground and they could mm-hmm. sing and kind of move like for peace portat. They'd be like, stand, crouch, crouch, stand. <laughs> you know, right. Stand and then stand, crouch, sit, or whatever that is. You know, you could kind of be moving however the the melody is. And that could also be oral if you do it first for the students and you say, why do you think I just did what I did? And then they say, oh, well, you were showing the melody with your body. Well, yes, I was. <laughs> Let's try it together. And then it becomes physical. So again, why? yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Wait. 
Okay. So as is that good for physical? Anything else you want to add? You know, it's, it's not exactly um, specific to dough, but another transitional thing that I'll do or kind of like a connect our brain or body back to the lesson, if I see students that need a little extra engagement, I'll ask a student um, in between activities, let's say I'm setting up the smart board or something, um, you know, Joey, who would be a skip away from you right now in where you're sitting in the line? Or, you know, Susie, who's a step away from you? Or if you're the so, where, who would be doe from where you're sitting right now in their rows? So it's just yeah. like another way of thinking. And also it gives me the opportunity to like, you know, plug in my dongle <laughs> and get things set up. But well, it, and it takes it away from the melody, but it, you know, it's, it's not a singing activity. They're not hearing it, but they do have to think through you know, the sort of the contour and how, how far away they are spatially from someone else? Well, actually, that's a great segue, Katie, because oh. I was going to talk about other learning styles. And one of the learning styles that when I was doing research that I found was logical. And I believe what you just described was a logical learning style, like it was logical <laughs> learning style activity because they have to use their logical reasoning, right? Right. I would say logical, maybe even a little spatial, depending on how they yeah. interpret it. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. So, so logical was one of the learning styles. Another one was verbal or linguistic, um, which, you know, students maybe um, learn well when they're able to read the lyrics or, you know, which I think would be good for everybody, honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, if they read the lyrics as they sang or some of the activities that we talked about today where they're reading the lyrics, but the lyrics have contour would be um, verbal or linguistic learning style. Mm-hmm. And then, um, social would be students working together in small groups, which, you know, we often do as music teachers, um, for a variety of reasons, whether they're, you know, composing an ostinato together or deciding which instruments should go where or whatever. Like there's so many different ways that you could do, um, small group work, but I guess in the lens, through the lens of ticka ticka or dough, you know, maybe you're having, like I said, students could be composing an ostinato that has a ticka ticka in it, or students could compose an ostinato that has so me and dough in it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another learning style could be just solitary, independent work, um, which there's a lot that we can do in the music room as well. That could be independent work. Um, and I've had fun this year, especially, I feel like I've really been experimenting a lot with whole class setting small group setting, centers, Mm -hmm. you know, solitary, which again, that could be a whole other podcast episode, but just something to keep in mind um, that I I really think what I've gotten from, um, you know, my training as well as the research that I just did for this episode was the more ways that you can present learning to students, the better, you know? Yes. I also, I think in the social aspect, A turn and talk concept or a think, pair, share is really helpful here. Um, One thing that I do have to train my students to do is that if they are really going to think, pair, share, that when they think, they can't raise their hand. If you're really thinking, I really want you to take that time and think. Don't raise your hand during that time because then you've made a decision. Don't make a decision right now, you know. And I have so much fun, especially with Tikka Tikka, because it's just such a fun 
group of syllables, you know, ticka ticka is so fun to say in itself, but so are all the four syllable words that are out there. So right. a lot of times during that prep phase, I'll say, okay, we're going to think, then turn and talk. I want you to, you know, whisper your voice levels at a whisper, but I want you to share with your partner as many states as you can think of. Okay. Now we're going to think, think about as many four syllable words that you can share with your partner that are fruit, you know, so give them a different topic, give them the opportunity to think, but then give them that social time. And they have so much fun with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Which I think actually the activity you just described actually addresses several different learning styles. I think it could address linguistic, Mm -hmm. logical, and social, you know, a trifecta. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, this was fun. You want to talk about what we're consuming? Right now I'm consuming a lot of tea. been a little under the weather, which is why some of my stream of consciousness tonight might be hard to follow. (laughs) You're doing well. Thank you. I wouldn't know any different, except that I knew you had a sub yesterday, but other than that. I did, I did. Oh, I hate that, but it went well. Um, What are you consuming? So I already mentioned Music Teacher Coffee Talk. I, I love listening to their podcast and following them on Instagram and they have an IGTV like channel on Instagram and Carrie just posted about escape the room in the music classroom. I saw that. It's so cool. I am so excited. So I have been like kind of hearing about escape the room, but I didn't totally get it um, or how I could apply it to the music room. I didn't really give it a whole lot of thought to be perfectly honest with you, but then she showed a really specific, really specific ways to use it in the music room, which really could be used for any concepts. You know, it's not specific to any one concept, but I just loved what she did with it. So if you want to check that out, I'll I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But if you're following them on Instagram at Music Teacher Coffee Talk, then you can just like where their Insta stories are. I think there should be an icon that says IGTV and you can click on that. I will be checking it out. Yeah. So I actually think that I'll be um, trying something like that with third grade soon. And Amy, the librarian at my school, we just talked about maybe doing it with fifth grade at the same time so that like when my fifth graders escape the room, once they finish the task, they go to the library. And once her kids who have specials at the same time finish their tests with her, they come to the music room. Oh, that is so cool. (laughs) Yeah. So we're still in the early planning stages of that, but, um, it kind of super fun. The the little that I was able to watch, I watched like all of one video and a little bit of the next video it sounded to me like it was a lot like centers, really. Okay. But um, but with students working in small groups, to it's almost like a cross between centers and like a scavenger hunt or something. It's it, it was right. just really. I'm, so I'm it might be a little bit more fluid as to when they move on from a center. Oh yeah, it yeah. wouldn't so, be it wouldn't be as teacher centered in terms of when they switch. Yeah. So like you and I have talked about how I've been doing centers this year where um, students can switch whenever they want. 
And actually, I can link to a blog post that I, I wrote recently about that, where I have six centers in the room and they just flow and switch whenever they want. And there might be one center that I definitely want them to do, but, um, and maybe I want them to go three centers total, at least Those three of you centers listening, total, I, I have say. seen it happen and it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's working. Thanks. Yeah, it's really fun. Um, so it's kind of like that where like, yeah, it's not so teacher centered that I tell them when to move when they're done with the task that they go ahead and move and they like collect a letter at each, um, center or each station or whatever. And then they unscramble the letters to form a word, but she's got lots of Carrie has a lot of great ideas on the video. So definitely check that out if you're interested. So cool. Yeah. All right. So just a reminder about, for those of you listening, um, about reviews, make sure that you leave a review in the iTunes store if you haven't already so that other music educators can find this podcast and also make sure to subscribe to the music room while you're there so that you can, uh, be notified of any new podcast episodes. Anything Yay. else? I'm just, I'm glad to hear that, um, so many of the things that we're doing align, even though we yeah. work together, we don't yeah. always get to actually see each other do things. And it's just nice to, to get that affirmation sometimes. Hopefully our listeners are getting that same feeling. It's just yeah. nice to hear that others are on that same track. Yeah, but also knowing, like we said, that there's no one right or wrong, you know, one right way to do anything. It's just, you know, there's several different pathways, but hopefully through this episode, you've gotten a few different ideas for, you know, addressing those learning styles. All right. So thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. Have a great day. You too.